Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening here today. Sovereignty was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Reclaim Me. I'm your host, Madeline Heather. Reclaim Me is a true crime podcast told by those at the centre of those crimes, the victim survivors. The general public often hears stories of victim survivors through the lenses of perpetrators or the media, and we're changing that narrative here. These interviews are raw and honest, so a word of warning is necessary as discussion and topics may be triggering or distressing for some listeners, so please use your discretion. If you need help or support, please see the suggested resources in the show notes of this episode or contact your local crisis service. Hi, fam. Thank you for listening to another episode of Reclaim Me. I've just got a little bit of information to give you at the top of the episode before we dig right in. Now, this year I'm a polished man ambassador and what polished men ask you to do is by simply painting one nail blue for the month of October, you'll spark countless conversations to help raise awareness and funds to ensure no woman or child has to live with violence. These conversations could be the motivation for a survivor to step forward, seek help and share their story. So obviously their remit is very aligned to the Reclaim Me podcast remit as well, which is to try and get as many people to talk about what they're going through and to give people platforms, whether it be via painting a nail or listening to this podcast. Now, in addition to that, um, what you can do is sponsor me via the Polished Man website. So every donation above $2 will actually be a tax deductible uh, donation for you if you want to do that. But I also have a much, much more exciting, more exciting announcement than that and a way that we can still raise money for Polish men, and that is that we've got a Reclaim Me Live event happening in Melbourne, Australia. Now, this will be on Thursday evening on the 28th of September, and this event will have a number of guests that are incredible victim survivors who I will announce via social media in the coming days and weeks. It's going to be a place where we come and have you know, a live conversation. So it would be very similar to a live podcast with a few people with just shorter episode like lengths. Um, we're going to stick around and network with all of the guests and all of the people who attend afterwards and all of the proceeds will go to Polished Man as well. So if you are in Melbourne or if you want to travel to Melbourne, then please come and join us. It's going to be amazing. It falls the day before the grand final public holiday as well. So if you are so inclined to have a couple of drinks, we can have a cheers afterwards and we don't have to worry about the hangover. (laughs) Now, the other thing that I did want to ask as well, if you are interested in any of those things, or if not, if you can take a couple of minutes, please go and vote for me in the Australian Listener's Choice Awards for the Australian Podcast Awards. Now, the more people that 
vote the better, obviously, because it is based on a tally of votes. Uh, So if you just head to the links in the bio, so everything that I've just spoken about, they're all linked below in the bio section of this podcast episode. If you click on the link to the podcast voting website, then basically it takes 30 seconds. Um, Every other bit of information is there as well. So Please, if you can, while you're listening to this, if you're walking, if you're in the kitchen, if you're doing anything else, if you're driving, do not. But (laughs) when you reach your destination, before you get out, if you can take those two seconds to please complete those for me, that would be so much of a wonderful help. And yeah, let's keep this podcast going and, and getting the recognition of things like Listener's Choice is just an amazing opportunity to do that. So Thank you so much. But I will stop waffling on uh, about all of the things that I want you to do and I'll deliver what I do. (laughs) That is another episode this week. This week we are joined by Camille and I'm so excited to have her here because we just have the best conversations. So without any further ado, here is Camille. Hello and welcome to another episode of Reclaim Me. Today I am joined by Camille. Camille is the founder of the Stop Campaign she is a Churchill Fellow recipient, an advocate, a badass, a survivor, a lot of other things. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you on. We actually connected a couple of years ago, I think it is now, and we've both been um, in each other's corners along the way, whether it be supporting each other through chats, being fellow survivors or supporting each other in the work that we both do and just being able to watch you do everything as well has been really cool for me. Um, but yeah, do you, was it, it's a couple of years since we connected, do you reckon? Yeah, it must've been actually, it definitely was because I remember when we first spoke, I was like sitting in my, my room of my <laughs> picture house trying to be really <laughs> quiet so my housemates couldn't hear me talking about trauma and sexual violence, which they probably wouldn't have minded, but you know, yeah, I do remember that. It must have been twenty twenty one, maybe. I think it was because it was just. I think it was in the first six months of me launching the podcast, and I remember us connecting and being like, "Man, this this gal's sick," and we just got along <laughs> so well. And then you got you did the Churchill Fellowship, so you received that, and then you went overseas, and I was one of your jealous mates watching you travel around the world and get to learn and also do your advocacy. Do you mind talking a little bit about what that was about? Yes, absolutely. It was so fun. So I originally got my Churchill Fellowship quite a few years ago, but I finally got to travel in the end of last year. And Basically, what the Churchill Fellowship is, is an opportunity for Aussies to go overseas on like a passion project to talk to people on the ground in that area and learn from them and then bring that back to Australia. So mine was all about um, sexual violence on university campuses, but specifically looking at activism, the importance of activism and how um, collaboration between activists and university institutions leads to much better outcomes in terms of preventing sexual violence on campus. So I got to go to the US and then Canada and then the UK and all in all, I think it was around 11 weeks of research. So I met, yeah, the coolest people and I'm, 
I'm still writing my report and all of my blogs and things like that because I sadly got quite unwell towards the end. Um, but I'm so excited to revisit it and connect with everyone again and start to share everything I learnt with the world in the coming months. So, yeah. That would be amazing. And it, But it was like I remember chatting with you when you were away and it was like, you know, travel every day, going to different things every day. You're like – trying to present things, you're trying to absorb things, you're meeting new people, you're in a different country. Like it, was, it wasn't like a, a holiday. It was a lot. Really. It was, yeah, was full-on, right? Yeah, and some days, like, I remember, so um, in the – a lot of fellows that have already travelled, um, I would ask them for advice, like, before I went, and the biggest thing they would always say is, don't overdo it, don't book more than one meeting or interview in one day. And I really overdid it, and I – I think on one day I, I organized, I spoke to six, like six separate interviews in one day because I thought that was a great idea. Anyway, so I really just did overdid it, but I spoke to more than a hundred people in that period, which is really cool, which is also why I thought that I could write the blogs and my learnings and like process information along the way. But after I did that a few times for maybe the first two weeks, I could not keep that up. So I kind of just had to focus on being more present. And then I got back and then it was straight into work. So now I'm just like doing it slowly as I can. Absolutely. And it's also like, it's difficult topics. It's difficult personally as a survivor as well. And that's something so many like fellow advocates and I have spoken about too. Sometimes you just hit a wall with what you're doing because it is so emotionally draining. And like I've said so many times, like, nah, I'm fine with vicarious trauma. I've done a, yeah. I've done so much work <laughs> on it. And then all of a sudden I'll just be like driving to work, crying for no reason. I'm like, maybe, yeah. maybe it is impacting me a little bit. <laughs> It's so true, and especially when I was meeting people who were trying so hard, but they were just being treated so poorly by their institutions, and that includes some staff as well. So I met a lot of people who were kind of recent graduates, and they wanted they were activists, and they wanted to continue the work, so they join in, you know, um, leading the peer support groups on campus because overseas that's a thing it's not a thing here that I've ever seen anyway um which Mm. is so amazing but they are literally being paid peanuts so they also have another full-time job like in hospitality at night just to sustain their livelihood because that's how undervalued their work was so it was it was just made me frustrated at the institutions even if they were doing amazing work and I was learning so much from them I was like how are you going to sustain yourself like this is so Oh, it was just horrible. Like people, the people were amazing, but the institutions honestly know better than Australia. So, mm. absolutely. And I guess that kind of brings us to the Stop campaign, which you know, I guess hand in hand with the Churchill Fellowship and why you went and spoke and did all of that work is that you and you started the Stop campaign. Do you want to maybe tell the listeners a little bit about the amazing work that you've done in founding that? Yeah, for sure. So in 2018, when I was an undergrad, I started the Stop Campaign and we're a grassroots organisation addressing sexual violence on university campuses and we're fully student-led or recent alumni and we 
do all of our work through the lens of empowerment, activism, awareness and education. So it really started as a lot of awareness raising. I just, there was absolutely nothing on campus at the time. I lived in a residential hall. It was really yikes, like constant sexual harassment, sexual assault, and very little support from our leaders um, and staff members. Um, But it's really grown a lot, which I'm very proud of. But it's just really cool to see a lot of newer students and like younger I say younger generations, mostly just because um, a lot of people on the campaign say that I'm really old now. So I'm kind (laughs) of on my, (laughs) which I'm like, okay. Um, So I'm kind of on my transitioning out journey, which is also very exciting because it means that STOP can kind of have like new leadership, new ideas, new activism, because it's changing all the time um, and probably grow to be broader than Canberra, which is something that we've noticed a lot more is getting interest from people across the country over the past year. So yeah, we do a lot of different programs, but it's all based around kind of wanting to create safer campuses through different prevention programs um, mostly, but then also resources for support as well. Yeah. And it's so amazing. And it's so true as well, though, like, and it's so wonderful to have those people that are alumni and that are transitioning out with that little bit of extra sometimes um, world experience where they can add that kind of what maybe it should look like. I think when I was um, at university, I was lucky enough not to live on campus. I mean, lucky enough in that sense, like, you know, living on campus is for many people really great experience of leaving home for the first time, etc. So, you know, but I just remember the stories I would hear and I wouldn't even know where to begin with looking for support. Like, I think back to my experiences at university and I would think like, you know, do you go onto the university page? Do you go to student services? Do you go to the library? Like I actually can't even think of who there's not like a HR department. You can't just go to HR and be like something happened. There's no, like, it's a really difficult process. So I love just that the ease and simplicity that you've kind of taken this back to in the terms of like, not just, education and prevention but it's just like here's some tools we've created them you don't even have to do anything we've got them we'll have a meeting with you we'll even come in we'll do it for free anything that you need we can do literally you know and i think everything we do it's basically that (laughs) yeah and it's just so amazing that you've you've done that but then on the converse side of that the frustration i guess that we all feel is that not not everyone's willing to come to the table and take your help and resources because they don't think that they have a problem. Oh, completely. We even have, so we, um, and this has been from the beginning, but as we, I guess, evolve and grow and receive feedback and learn, we've developed heaps of resources and we're updating them all the time. We now consult all of them with different community groups in Canberra um, on some of our main resources. So the Safe Response Toolkit, um, which goes through people's support and report options in Canberra. We consulted more than 70 organisations and some universities here, well, one in particular, um, won't distribute it. They're like, no, no, it doesn't have our logo on it. So no, we can't we can't provide all of the support and report options for students and staff on campus. It's absolutely ridiculous. And when I first started um, STOP, one of the first things I did just for my hall 
is created a disclosure like postcard. So what's the process? What's going to happen? What can you expect? And then if you do report, what's the process of that? Who do you have to talk to? Um, those kind of things. And um, that was at the ANU because I was a student there. And they ended up adapting all of those postcards, which is like basic 101 information, like really should not be considered that groundbreaking basic processes. Um, and then we got that adapted for all of the colleges. And then so the ANU would distribute it. They said, oh, we don't want your logo on it. Can we put ours on it? I said, okay, whatever. Just take credit as long as you keep distributing it. And then apparently they don't, no, they don't do it anymore. Oh, they don't just, they don't, they, they don't even have that. So I just find like, even just going backwards in some of the basic, basic steps of where we started back in 2018. Now I talk to students on stop who are living in these residential halls now and they go, what? I've never seen that. I have no idea what the disclosure process is. We receive no information in our induction, absolutely nothing. So oh, there's no kind of like continuation of a lot of these things as well. And I think, I think a lot of these universities expected stop to go away. Like I would graduate and it would just disappear, but it's been quite the opposite. We've just kept growing and growing, which is amazing. But yeah, it would be great if um, people in power actually took even some of these simple and cheap um, resources and um, solutions like a bit more seriously because we can make a really big difference in people's lives if they knew that they could disclose or they could report or they could get support on campus on campus and it's free so hundred yeah. percent and it's also just such a a different issue in the whole for so many different campuses and different places because it's not something that is reported on in many uh, circumstances, which I there was an article that we were talking about before we started recording that we both kind of laughed at because of the absurdity of it, right, which is basically that some institutions will state that they have no sexual assault or sexual harassment problem. Um, they don't have any disclosures that happened there. They're on zero, so they don't need help because they don't have a problem there. Um, and that's something that you faced quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. We have meetings all the time with different parts of um, education institutions here. And we had one recently with this institution. It was actually the head of counselling. And they just said, oh, so we were distributing that same resource, the Safe Response Toolkit I mentioned. So we're in there just wanting to provide extra resources. We're not there in an advocacy position in this case. And they just go, oh, well, we don't really have sexual assault here, so I don't even know if we need it. I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean? And it's not the first time that someone has said that. Like we've even had um, – we I remember we went and spoke to someone uh, I think about two years ago now at a different university, and it wasn't a staff member this time. It was actually a student leader on the relevant student union. So they're in the advocacy body elected by the students and they also said to us um oh yeah no we don't have sexual assault here that only happens down the road at ANU um where you're from so yeah we'll be right thanks and just re just completely refused to take take any of our resources or get more involved or even set up a meeting so it's a massive problem particularly with whoever happens to be in power if they have a real issue with 
even acknowledging that violence exists and they're a part of the problem, then what they say goes. So, Absolutely. yeah. And like, I guess for the people that are listening that maybe don't get it as much as well or need that kind of explained more, because I guess it would make sense for some people to be like, well, if a university campus is saying that there is no reported assaults, then why do they need help, et cetera? Do you mind explaining a little bit of the background of, of why we think that's bullshit, <laughs> but also like what the <laughs> impacts are? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, the way that universities operate is very interesting and it's very different to the rest of society, I would say, and particularly within residential settings. So a lot of universities do not have policy, like any policies or any procedures on anything to do with sexual assault or sexual harassment. And if they do, they're honestly only recent since the um, 2017 Change the Course report came out. But I have some few, a few stats here that actually talk about from that survey that talk about the prevalence rates. And this is acknowledging that Every single point of data that we ever have in Australia is extremely think sexual violence is so underreported that this is really underdoing it and it's still quite shocking. So for example, in the most recent report across all or most of Australian universities in Australia, one in three students will experience sexual assault in their lifetime in Australia. So they're the kind of statistics of the amount of people, whether they're experiencing violence or sexual violence specifically on campus or off campus, um, it, how high it is. And regardless of, I guess, where they're experiencing sexual violence, their education institution, where they're attending most days or in a lot of cases they're also working there or they're living there in a lot of times, um, deserve to be able to receive some sort of support around what they're navigating like it's kind of ridiculous how we have a lot of mental health support services and we don't talk about oh but the mental health like that wasn't caused here on campus right so we we don't we don't really do that but for sexual assault like people are just don't want to talk about it um and even thinking about sexual violence we don't have or to my knowledge we don't have many stats on domestic violence, um, which is really prevalent. Like I've seen heaps of domestic violence incidents and in intimate partner violence on campus escalated to um, extremely critical incidents. Um, and like mental health and suicide as well, like it happens, um, but we just don't talk about it. So I don't know. I could go on for a, a long time about it. Um, but I guess the only other thing to add is that um, when sexual assault, based on the data that we do have, is happening on campus, it's mostly happening in living quarters, so in residential halls or other on-campus accommodation, or it's happening in things like, you know, sporting groups or within the university club environments at bar nights and parties and those sorts of common spaces. So it's extremely common. We just don't like to talk about it. Or if it doesn't relate to our personal experience, we don't want to acknowledge that it's there. But the thing is, is that universities will just completely silence staff and students from being able to speak out about it. I mean, I know people who've been, you know, served defamation claims if they try to speak out or threaten that they'll be taken to court. So 
or they'll, you know, threaten that they'll lose their jobs and their livelihoods and they can't afford to do that. So it's a very scary place and universities wield a lot of power, which is why I think there's a lot of misconceptions that, oh, sexual assault isn't happening that much or it's not that bad or why should the university, you know, have to do anything about that? But we don't talk in that way about other issues that are really important. So I'll stop my spiel there. I could go on forever. (laughs) I love the the information, the stats, like everything and the passion behind it as well because it's something that is so preventable. This is stuff that does not have to happen. And if you just shine a light on it, then light, I always say things like light, light disinfects. And the the longer that you keep it in the dark, the more it will fester. And the thing I constantly say to people as well, when they refer to things like workplaces that seem safe, um, it's, it's an interesting concept, but it's also just like, like the, all microcosms in society, university being one, many large workplaces are, you know, these these are insular locations that have people in charge, they have people overseeing things. There is a lot that we don't hear and see as well. But with the prevalence of sexual violence, with the prevalence of domestic violence as well as you mentioned, what we're talking about is that it's impossible really at these rates for it to not be present. So by saying that there is no incidence of it, you're either kind of saying, so if any organization, for example, was to state that they had zero incidence of it, they're either not performing in a function where they can report on it, which means like, oh, we actually have no process to address sexual violence claims or allegations. That's why we're at zero. So they're putting forward potentially statistics that are misrepresenting the stats. <laughs> They're yeah. putting forward information in a direct conflict to what they know or what they might not know because they've put no effort in. Um, or we have a bunch of maybe situations where, I guess at the end of the day, if I go back to our conversation before, sorry, I'm going around in circles. <laughs> if I go back to our kind of conversation before we started recording as well, it was just that, I guess at the end of the day, if you if you see statistics of a, or somebody or a university or a campus saying that they they have no incidents, that looks worse for you than it does to address the issue and say that it's there. Like to say, yeah, we've got this level of incidence rates over this many years, we've got this many processes in place, it is a problem, but look what we're doing about it. That looks so much better than somebody saying, It doesn't happen here because we know that that's factually not correct. That's factually impossible. And even if it was possible for that to happen one year, the likelihood that you'd have that many people of this age group under all of those conditions not having any incidents of it, then that's deserving of a world-class, you know, formal study into how they've managed to prevent (laughs) this level of violence happening in this wonderful unicorn land that they've created. It's so true. And I I sometimes think like whenever they're saying that, they're basically saying, well, they're turning a blind eye, obviously. um, But at the same time, they would know about it. It's just all about, you know, how they speak publicly and, you know, PR stunt and, you know, mitigating their media risk, which, you know, they rate a lot more higher than people's, you know, well-being and safety. But they're basically just saying, oh, we don't support we don't support people who experience that stuff. No. And they just other them as if, no, no, they don't go to my institution. That doesn't happen here where I am, which really just demonstrates that these people like are certainly part of the problem because silence is violence. So 
Yeah, it's so frustrating just having those conversations and considering that we're all volunteers. We all do all of this on our unpaid time because we really care. A lot of us are victims and survivors. Like we're really passionate about this. Um, but we also we bring so much expertise as well. But the power imbalance between in all of these situations, like receiving gross threatening emails, like, okay, okay, like start senior executive staff member of this very, you know, prestigious in- institution, you're actually sending me a survivor of sexual violence from your campus who's trying to actually prevent this from happening to others on my unpaid time, you're actually like threatening me right now. Really? Like how do, is that, do you feel okay about that? Like sometimes I just don't know how a lot of these people make their values judgments and live like live this way. And I just, I can't see another way living without doing this work. So even though I'm transitioning out of stop, I'm still doing all the work. I just want to get more involved in doing it in different ways and making sure that it is truly student led. Um, as I'm transitioning, well, I'll hopefully fingers crossed graduate uni this year, but I just, it's just really frustrating. And the way that I even speak to media and meet like media journalists and they can't even share, like they want to share stories, but they go, Oh, my livelihood's also been threatened by the lawyers at that university. So I can't, I'm sorry. So they're just controlling so much of society. Government won't intervene up until this recent, um, you know, over the past couple of weeks, there's been quite a bit of traction from the federal government, but I'm not seeing any state and territory governments talk about it. And they're the ones that are meant to be doing a lot of this work anyway. So it's just complete silence. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, politicians will like to post on their social media and things, but we're still yet to see like (laughs) true action because someone that wields perhaps a little bit more power than universities, which may be the government is probably the only way that we're going to get some change at this point. The level of input needed. And, you know, there needs to be incentives. There needs to be other things. And sadly, that's the way that it is. Ideally, us people who, you know, I actually think that we know better in many ways as well, like having people that are comfortable, happy and safe to work in workplaces and come to school will have much better outcomes You'll just have to put in a little bit of work up front to make sure that you're doing all of those things. But, you know, I think it's interesting with all of the layers that you've added in terms of the information because it's there's no real way for universities at this level to feign ignorance and or to pretend that they don't have enough information. Considering men of the many of these <laughs> I said men of these bit of a Freudian slip there, but um <laughs> many of these institutions um they they have so many academics that are doing a lot of these studies as well they would have gender studies they would have violent studies you know i did um anatomy and physiology at latrobe university and i remember i did uh, a lot in terms of even the anatomy studies and there was so much that we did around gender equality and I personally had a great experience at Latrobe, but I also wasn't living on campus. I had a very different lifestyle than a lot of other people did with doing that. We were also a separate kind of um, attachment campus because we had to be a part of these wet labs, for example, where we would mm-hmm. dissect cadavers. We were not a part of those main campus areas. And the only time I remember it really in my four years of uni 
going into the main campus parts were maybe to go to the library, but I never once even went to, I was a bit of a recluse. Like I'm a party gal, but I like, I didn't like hanging out with the uni people. I don't know why, but I just remember in my personal experience, I never even went, we had a place called Eagle Bar and people went there like, there's like Thursday night, they'd have all of these big events and things. And while you'd still hear things happening, we just, myself personally wasn't in the environment where I was around that very much. The level that it blows my mind on the fact of, even though I've had no personal experience with this myself at university, I'm still aware of the situation. And the fact that there are so many academics that are working in so many areas that are teaching people to become professionals in these spaces, like that's is mind boggling as well. And I don't, oh, it's frustrating because I find, um, I've even noticed some universities, so they go, oh, you know, we found this wonderful program in the United States at, you know, this Columbia University. Okay. And then they, they just pick it up. They pick it up because, you know, they've got accolades and it all looks amazing on paper. Um, and then they plop it here. It doesn't work. Because what are you doing? Like, it's not with the Australian experience. There's no community consultation to adapt it. It's And this is like consent matters and other, you know, prevention programs that some very few universities are implementing. And then they they don't, yeah, don't do any consultation. It's not truly peer-led. You know, they're not engaging with the actual student body, like the specific student body that they're targeting. So if it's for residential halls, talk to students in residential halls. Make sure that they're the ones that are actually um, co-facilitating these sessions, bringing them on board, being a part of the process. No, no, no. They just drop it in, you know, with like older PhD students, which are not peers. That's not a peer to a 19-year-old in a res hall, a 28-year-old doing their PhD, very different type of student, talking about highbrow, like, you know, theories around sexual well-being. Like, it's not going to work. So I find that really interesting because we look elsewhere sometime because it looks all good and fancy and all that kind of thing when there are so many experts in our universities doing this work that are just completely disconnected from so they might be doing work on gender-based violence or restorative justice or lots of different related issues um things around consent education in schools but they're not using they're not utilizing their knowledge and expertise around sexual violence in their community in the university And I find that extremely frustrating, mostly because they'll go, oh, no, no. And I get emails, no, Camille, no, we do have this project. Have you seen it? Yeah, developed in the US. I'm like, I don't care. I don't care. I've traveled and spoken to all of these researchers and they're great, but you're not implementing it in the way that needs to be done for the Australian context and for the context of this campus and these students. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So it's really interesting because we have, yeah, amazing experts, even at ANU, in my experience, because that's where, um, I guess most of my knowledge is just from, you know, starting all of this there um, and being a student and getting really involved. Um, yeah, we have so many amazing researchers, like complete experts in restorative justice, but we can't seem to figure out how to implement any types of restorative principles or, you know, restoring relationships, building trust between staff and students on this issue, just generally, not even in relation to sexual assault. We can't even do it in the classroom. So when that is the key principles of what, you know, those researchers are talking about, but the university in the professional side of the university won't want to touch it. It's, it's just, it's so interesting because there's almost going to be enough information from their own internal projects and PhD programs as well that would hang themselves with the research that their own students and PhD candidates have been able to draw out. You know, and it, it exactly. is bizarre to think that it's not being implemented as a priority. Like there is definitely somewhere in one of these universities, a PhD student that has looked at the incidents of sexual violence on campus, for example. There's so got many. to be more than one. So many. <laughs> I've seen so many so on we, Twitter. And I'm like, got- <laughs> like this is amazing. <laughs> but why are we like... They're endorsing their own students to do this research, but they're not. And it, it's just, it's a very, very interesting thing to kind of think think about. And, you know, I think we get caught up in this corporate ladder and, you know, as myself working in, um, in government for a long time as well, like there is a political aspect to many things. And in all organisations as well, there is such this tendency to lean towards don't tell anybody that we have a problem. Um, pretend that it's everything's fine. Look at he- over here, something's shiny. Um, in order to make yourselves look better, but I think what I'm hoping that I feel there's a bit of change in many instances is coming. We're definitely not there yet, though. But I just feel like we've got to lead towards the the place where we incentivize people who address their issues, not the people who are reporting the lowest numbers. It shouldn't be based on that. It should be based on the forward uh, proactive steps that you are taking to address a serious, serious issue. What kind of research are you leading individually as an organization? What policies do you have in place? 
What kind of education do you have in place? What resources do you have in place? What continual education do you have of staff and students? What's it like? How do you address issues and risks? Do you have a risk issues log? There's so many things that you could pivot this in terms of making it a positive reportable rather than focusing on this one number being what is the thing that people are driving for. Driving down the numbers eventually obviously is what we want, right? But it's so important that we address the fact that people are doing nothing about it. Absolutely nothing. And it's so interesting, everything you've said, because that is so much of the answer, like uh, all of the things that you just asked about, where are they? And I find um, when universities are asked about it, they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah. So we, so we have policies, we have procedures. And they'll go, so, you know, organisations like Universities Australia or TEXA, which is the, oh, I'm never going to get the name right, but basically the regulator of higher education. Um, so they'll say, yeah, we've got policies on this. Yeah, yeah, we've got training, we've got consent training, and they'll go, okay, they don't ask for evidence. In what world, like in any other industry, would that be okay? So I've seen so much reporting where they'll say, yeah, we have policies and procedures, or we have this, or they'll put a really brief fact sheet or something on their website, but you have to go through 18 sub tabs to get there, and it's all very difficult. Um, talking about all the things they have. But if you talk to any students or um, staff that are in more um, lower positions on the ground, they'll go, oh, no, there's no policy that exists. No, not at all. They just make it up as they go along. And a lot of these, like, reporting avenues, they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, we have a policy process where if someone reports to us through our anonymous reporting form, which, I mean, big tick that that's an option at some universities, they'll say, you know, we get back to them with, you know, resources and next steps in 48 hours. I have friends that have submitted through that form who never received a response, and there's more than one person. So they're just, they're just lying. And it, I always wonder as well, like, at what point, at what point in the hierarchy of the institution are they actually ignorant? Have they just are they just taking their word for it of the people reporting to them, or are they all colluding? Are they all a part of this? So, I and I never know, and I I just I always wonder. But then at the same time, we reach out to those people who are more senior, and they go, no, no, we won't talk to you. You're not important enough. You can go talk to the person three levels below me, which is the person who's causing a lot of this harm. So, it's just a complete problem that we would never see this in a lot of other workplaces where we don't ask for evidence of how they're actually addressing this issue on campus. Absolutely. And I have just like thought in my head as you're talking through a lot of that as well, like, you know, at a lot of organizations, when you start working there, they'll have some automated training module that'll be like sexual harassment in the workplace. And it'll be like, what is sexual harassment? A, falling down the stairs, B, eating an apple, C, and then, like, that's, it's, it's, it's so basic and easy, but then there's, there's also different ways in which you could educate because you've got different levels of education, right? You've got professors and people who are, uh, usually they're in a dual capacity as a researcher and an educator that have full-time contracts and get paid a lot of money. A lot of them also get a lot of research money for the university so that they can conduct research as well. So somebody like that is a very different level than somebody who is a master's level educator 
So they've got a master's degree in science and they're doing an introductory to science level for first years. You've got different levels like that. You've also got your students. You've got so many different facets that would have to be trained, but you've already got the infrastructure to establish, for example, mandatory modules. Every single person that's been to university has done an academic integrity module at the very beginning of each year. (laughs) And if you don't do it, you cannot pass your degree. You can't pass anything unless you do that. It takes five minutes, (laughs) but you can't pass your degree unless you do that. So there's already, you know what I mean? Like, it's not like you would have to create a whole new CRM system or an entire new infrastructure. What you've already got existing is already there. This is like, this would be the easiest thing in the world to fucking implement. Oh, exactly. And some of the, you know, um, there's that module, the consent matters module. A lot of what they do have um, when they implement those, which only in very few universities do they make it mandatory. But when they do, then they implement it in very harmful ways. But the types of questions, it's like um, map across the country the different ages of consent because in some places it's 16 years old and some places it's 17 years old. And then it goes through just like basic, basic definitions and then you're done. Great. So it's not helpful um, in the way that it's, because it's clearly not taken seriously by the institution and students aren't stupid. Like they can see that it's a tick and flick exercise. So then they can say, oh, we've had, um, you know, a 97% completion rate and it makes them look really good on paper but they've done this, you know, seven minute like clicking through. Okay, yep, yep. Age of consent is sixteen. I get it. I get it. These are the laws, and it's all around legal frameworks. Like it has no sex positive framing um, from the ones I've seen anyway. And again, that original consent matters module was not developed by Australians. It was developed by researchers in America and the UK. And again, it's and they pay the big like it's not cheap to also have this module across all these universities. I've even spoke to a university that said, yeah, we know it's not good and we do think we should have something a bit different, but we still have three more years on the contract of it, so I guess we'll just keep it. It's like, are you joking? Um, So even just finding, yeah, they already have the system, but can they just actually develop something with students and staff in their communities, draw on their researchers in that university to develop something fit for purpose for that community, include interactive activities like videos of people talking about what's important to them in the context of sexual violence prevention and sexual well-being promotion. If we want to actually make any impact, it has to be more sex positive anyway. So there's so much that could be done, but they'll never do it because if it's not if it's not seen as like a legitimate um I guess, business. Like sometimes I think if things are done within the community or they're not done by, you know, an organization that has staff on their payroll, they'll think it, oh, well, it could never be as good as what we've got these consultants to do and what we pay the big bucks for, which is, you know, definitely the opposite. Um, So yeah, I've had heaps of universities just kind of say that, well, oh yeah, we'll just renew it because it's, it's easy and it makes us look good on paper. And that's the frustration as well, right? Because often in responses to poor reports or poor audit outcomes, somebody will have 12 months to implement a major ongoing strategy or something. And that's where they will get in those consultants. And it's not to say that a consultant is not a good thing to do. It's not to say in that at all, but it's saying like, what if you just hired a few people now 
um, probably from your own pool of people that are expertly educated by your own institution on some of these topics to create something that is future focused and long lasting. Like mm. don't be reactive, be proactive. Like it's just, to me, it seems so straightforward and you would think with the decreasing numbers of people going to university now because uh, the value of a degree has gone down, you would think that the investment in well-being and making it a much more, I guess, desirable place to go for many people, that would be the focus. Yeah. I mean, even in some – so I don't know if you saw this recently reported on a few weeks ago. Well, the University of Western Australia just completely announced they're, like, fully defunding their wellbeing area. No one. So, no, mental health, sexual violence doesn't happen here. We're just going to cut funding altogether. So there's a lot of universities are actually taking more money out of these areas that are critical rather than putting money into it. So it's it's like you're going, you, you think you're on the right direction. We feel like we're making progress. And then all of a sudden in the board meeting of all the senior executives, they go, well, we've got to cut money from somewhere. Oh, yeah, just do it from that that area. We don't need, we don't need well-being services, do we? So it's... Yeah, I just think the decision-making is so high-level and it's all around budgeting, financial, and they're also maximising, oh, how many more international students can we exploit to earn the big bucks? Like that's definitely on yeah. a lot of minds of senior executives across um, the university sector. And decisions are being made by vice-chancellors who, in many cases, they earn more than a million dollars a year. But they can't give you, you know... <laughs> They literally earn more than a million dollars a year, but if they, you know, do consultation of, like, anything on the ground, they won't even give you, like, a gift card or, like, you know, $10 to, like, help you get a, help you get transport or something. Like, it's just – I'm just – oh, the way that everything is done, it's so exploitative. Student leaders are paid nothing. You 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 invest some of your time when if they do finally consult you and they won't even give you anything, maybe 20 bucks at Woolies on a gift card. Like, it's actually ridiculous. But the vice chancellor, it is. It's too much, though. <laughs> you even giving this for free is too expensive. <laughs> it's too much. It's your, too much. <laughs> your free volunteer <laughs> services, we cannot afford your free, <laughs> non costing volunteer services. Too much, sorry. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so true when you say it like that. Everything we are, it's oh, I just I don't know what they think. I don't know. It's like all these emotions it, and then thoughts, feelings. I don't yeah. even know. I don't know what to think sometimes. But in terms of like processes, for example, because it's a national requirement now that there'll be ten days of family violence leave for everybody, right? Like, mm-hmm. if you have no well-being department. Who then is the person that's reviewing any of this information or what kind of things are you establishing? So, again, like it's up to each organization to do with it what that rule will mean. But if you've got nothing in place to support these people through anything, what, you know, that that leave, while absolutely is going to be wonderful, if they've got – do you know what I mean? Like it just – the implications of some of these processes and things that will continue to change throughout are going to need to be supported by infrastructure that exists within the business setting. And it sounds like Perth at least have tossed away a very yeah. good, 
gotten rid Resource. of that. Well, I think they just transfer <laughs> everything to H- to HR and think that, oh, HR will sort it. And I'm like, there's four people in HR, and now they're doing, you know, they're responsible for sexual assault, sexual harassment, they also do payroll, they also do all the training, you know, oh, they deal with the racism policy, like, they would have so much technically assigned to them, and a lot of these things, like, they're not HR issues, so the way that, that it's assigned to them anyway is problematic in itself, as if, you know, HR solves everything. Um, but I, I honestly think that's what they do. They just go, oh, we'll just transfer those policies to HR. They'll deal with it. They'll deal with all the, you know, all the issues on campus. So yeah, it's a, it's a huge problem. And just the framing as if that HR can solve everything, but then they won't give them more money to deal with it. You have started very quickly, um, a new campaign and it's called I deserve safety. Hashtag I deserve safety. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that started Um, and how you got that going. Yes, for sure. So it must have been, oh, time has gone by very quickly, but a couple of weeks ago we, so the Stop Campaign launched the hashtag I Deserve Safety campaign, and how it really came about is that we were having a lot of discussions with the amazing folks over at NRAPE on Campus Australia and Fair Agenda and also the National Union of Students. And um, NRAPE on Campus Australia has been advocating for an independent oversight mechanism of universities that is um, government funded, independent from the sector, you know, has experts leading it to basically serve the role that TEXA is meant to be doing now, which is the regulator that I mentioned. Um, So like complaints mechanism, Um, but they're basically not doing their job. So we need something else to actually hold universities to account for the harm that they're causing on their campuses. And also, I guess, their lack of anything to address the harm that is also happening. So we started to get quite a lot of traction recently and quite a bit of interest um, from different politicians, particularly the Crossbench and Larissa Waters. Um, so I just kind of basically spoke to Shana at Emory Pond Campus and said, what can we do to support? Because Stop Campaign usually does not really, we don't really do big like national advocacy. We're very focused on our local activism and prevention programs um, here on the ground in Canberra. So we decided to develop the hashtag I Deserve Safety social media campaign um, and how we did it um, with their support is collecting people's experiences of harm and why we really need urgent action on this issue and why self-governance and self-oversight by universities is not working and we need something different now. So that's how it came to be. We have a launch video on our social media if anyone's interested to kind of see a bit about um, what some of us were specifically calling for. And it also includes some of our experiences of sexual violence in university campuses. Um, so we so we did that. And then very excitingly, um, Senator David Pocock here in Canberra um, is – just a massive supporter of a lot of different people in the Canberra community. I actually am like very grateful that we've got someone like him in our corner and he invited us to come and launch it 
in Parliament House, which we've never received this sort of traction or support before from um, people in these powerful positions. So we did that. And yeah, like I said, a lot of the crossbench and the Greens are fully supporting the task force. They've supported and rape on campuses work for ages now. Um, so we got to kind of launch it there. And then suddenly we were in the Minister for Education's office talking about what it's like to live in a residential hall um, or on-campus accommodation setting, which um, he had no idea. Like he hadn't lived it himself. None of his staff had lived it themselves. And he just did not know like what it's like to live on a residential hall on campus. And I think he was quite shocked at what we were telling him, which are things that we just live day to day, like the constant sexual harassment, hazing, rape, like terrible, disgusting, like rituals that happen day to day. And then what's worse is the institutional betrayal and how a lot of students are treated by staff when they do report it. Um, like I mentioned before, like it's, I know people who've, you know, had to go through, you know, receiving defamation claims from their head of halls because they're mad that they went and spoke about not being listened to. So, you know, people wanted to share their experience on their own terms and some head of hall got mad about that. So decided to, you know, go and um, get some more money off them um, to make them be quiet. So that's basically a long winded way of saying that um, the I Deserve Safety campaign is really about continuing to keep up the traction, um, to continue to shed light on what's actually happening in residential halls specifically, because we know that a lot of people just don't know what's happening. And it's um, it's pretty horrific, like a lot of sexual violence, a lot of domestic violence, a lot of hazing, um, and also just really in support of an independent oversight mechanism and just some more federal government action more generally to start listening to students on the ground and implement changes. So um, that's kind of the campaign in a nutshell. Um, but we've now launched a survey, which we did very suddenly as well, where we thought, oh, we've got to continue this traction. So for a bit of background for listeners, there's a university's accord process, which is happening at the moment. And basically what that is, it's a big government review into higher education, everything and every anything to do with higher education. Um, and it's meant to um, basically inform the government about what they need to do because there's a lot of issues with the sector. So one of those things is the violence and harm that is occurring on campus. And that has been um, put up as a priority action in the interim report, which was released in July by the Accord panel that is kind of leading this process. So they've um, just released this consultation process, which if anyone's interested, anyone can make a submission. Um, you can put in about what is really important to you and what really needs to change about literally anything in the university sector. Um, and that will be published online or you could ask for it to be confidential and they'll take that into consideration for proposing recommendations to the minister. So our survey is collecting people's experiences of violence and harm on campus and particularly in residential halls and other on-campus um, businesses, like accommodation businesses like Uni Lodge, so that we can present that to the Accord panel through this process and then also feed it up to the minister to say like, hey, thanks so much for talking to us. Here's a stack of stories and also a stack of recommendations that you should implement 
to stop this from happening and hold universities to account. So, yeah, that's what it is in a nutshell. It's fully anonymous. It's open to ev- anyone and everyone, It our survey. So you don't have to be a student or at all, um, but anyone who wants to share could be a staff member, could be like a contractor, like maybe you did cleaning services in a res hall. Like there's a lot of people that see a lot of things um, but feel silenced to be able to share. So the reason it's anonymous is so that people have the opportunity to share without, you know, any threat of repercussions by um, their respective institution. And that's the best way that we're going to get the information that we need. Um, so that's awesome. And I think it's just incredible. So in the show notes of this episode, we'll have links to those uh, items that you can do. We'll also have a link to the Stop Campaigns page so that you can go read more about what they do and have a look into how you might be able to support and get involved as well, because it's so important that we do this. And, you know, if there are any other students out there or somebody's listening to this and you know a current student or somebody who's going to become one, even share this episode with them or share those resources. I think, you know, knowledge is power. It's really important that we give people the knowledge of knowing that a problem exists. And the more that we, uh, like we said throughout this conversation, keep our head in the sand, the, the more pervasive this problem will get, the worse it will become, the greater the impacts will be. And it's really, really important that we work together, together to try and, yeah, st- stop this and end rape on campus. Exactly. And I guess one thing I'll mention, which um, is the closing date of the survey. So really, unfortunately, it is going to close for this, just for this process on the 1st of September. Um, the reason for that is that the University Accord panel or, you know, the task force in the Department of Education thought that, you know, a couple of weeks would do for us to be able to <laughs> You know, for everyone across the country to be able to share um, what needs to change and also their experiences on campus. So I have, well, we have as a team tried to push back our best to get an extension, um, but they have been pushing back onto us saying, absolutely not. Um, you're going to have to submit it by this date. So hopefully I c- we can keep pushing and get that to change. But at the moment, it's only open till the 1st of September, but just because, you know, we're just doing this first tranche of survey um, for our submission to inform these reforms, we have full intentions of continuing to be able to collect people's experiences if they want to share in an anonymous format um, and keep feeding that up to the panel because, I mean, it's ridiculous to think that, oh, they won't read anything that's submitted past that date. Like, I would hope that if we can continue to share because, um I did bring up with them, like, you realise this is during the mid-semester, like it's a really peak exam period in terms of mid-semester assessments. Everyone's doing their first big essays and exams of the semester at lots of different universities over the next couple of weeks, but that didn't seem to change their mind. But hopefully we can continue to send that on to them or we can um, get people in the room with the minister or with other decision makers to actually share face-to-face or, you know, through a meeting, like this is what I've experienced because I'm in many ways shocked but also very grateful that he he did listen to what we were saying and he immediately said, okay, let's do something about it, like get involved in all of these consultations, like make sure you go and talk to this person, we're going to keep talking about your work. I don't know where this has been for the past five and a half years, um, but it's also yeah. really exciting because I think – 
I would hope that they're open to continuing to learn um, because this is all very new to them. So we want to be able to make as informed or make sure that whatever they do is informed by survivor experiences and survivor voices, because otherwise then it's probably not, not going to go down so well. Yeah. We're not taking the chancellor's uh, word as a, as a direct reflection of the current state of what's going on. And, you know, I always say, because I work in process, improvement um one of the things i will always say to people is when we need to understand a process and they'll go oh i know what goes on i know what goes on and i'm like i'm sorry but like if you have the manager of a mcdonald's are you going to ask them the intricacies of how to make the big mac because most of the time they've never done it before most of the time they've never really fully observed it before but who's going to be the best person to tell you and they're probably going to tell you while they're doing it So the person who's experienced the system, the person who's experienced the process is the best person to give an accurate representation of what happened at what point and what impact it had on them individually. Each person's impact will be very different, but hearing from people who have the lived experience is the ultimate way to gain an education on this. Another example would be if you're a, a prosecutor or a defense attorney, you would have gone in and out of courts all throughout, you know, maybe you're specifically a sexual assault attorney. Your experience and what you can deduce from your experiences are so different to what the victims have. Again, you wouldn't have experienced what they've gone through being assessed by a doctor or a nurse uh, during their rape kit. You wouldn't have experienced what people have gone through in the interview or interrogation that they've experienced. You're only getting to see a small aspect. And even from that, you're not getting the right perspective. So it's so important that when people are prioritizing, whether even if they're thinking themselves, oh, what I have to say doesn't matter. It does. It does from the level of giving multiple points of view to one topic. Like you said, with people who are in and out of those places who have seen things, that is so important that they shine a light on what their experience was. Because what if they've got management that are telling them that if you see something like sexual violence on campus, you do nothing. If that's what's being told to people, that's actually a crime. You can't cover up when you know that things are happening. So you know what I mean? There's just, there's so much in there. It's so true. And I will add, we do have, for people who want to learn more or might be feeling a bit unsure, so the survey, we also got support from wonderful Nina Fennell to make sure that all of our information and all of our consent information is as trauma-informed and survivor-centred as possible. So we do have a bit of a hefty frequently asked questions fact sheet that hopefully does have a lot of information. Um, And then we do have a few different, so really clarifying what people do consent to and don't, because maybe people want to share their experience with us, but they don't want it in the public submission. Great. So we can make sure that we feed that up through different um, forms. And in our questions as well, um, we have three main questions. First is about the experience or experiences. The second is about the impacts. And then the third is like, is there anything you really want the government to know to change or any recommendations? So they're all completely optional. So we do have some people talking about like, I just want to tell you how this impacted me. Like I had to drop out of uni. Um, All of these different things happen in my life. You know, I can't get a job. Whereas my perpetrator is now in this senior position of this firm. So we don't need to know 
what people have experienced as well. Like anything that people want to share is completely on their own terms. And we also have options for people to withdraw if they don't want to include it anymore. So, um, and for people who don't want to write it down, because I know that can be really scary for a lot of people. Um, we also have an option where for confidential phone calls with myself or one of our other members, Audrey, who is amazing. So just, yeah. And we're all, you know, we're all like students and activists and survivors. So, you know, there's no big, scary money-making machine going on in this like institutions. And we just, really want to make sure that we're not reproducing any of the harmful structures um, that universities do. So we're super cognizant of that and just want to make sure that people feel like their voice can be heard anonymously. Mm. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And I think that's just such a terrific thing. Um, so, yeah, like I said, we'll have all of the links in the show notes of this episode. Um, we'll post a heap on the socials. I'll link the social media for the stop campaign as well so that we can get people to see everything that's going on too. Um, and yeah, thank you so much, Camille, like for the work that you've done in starting this, for the continued research and advocacy that you've done, um, for getting so many people involved and what a legacy to eventually leave behind when somebody else takes this over as a, as a new student, like what a, what a cool, cool thing. Like you're just an absolute legend. As I said in the beginning, that you are you wear a lot of hats, but you're also just such a genuinely lovely person. And I'm so grateful to be connected to you and to work alongside you as a fellow advocate. Um, as I have for the past couple of years. I, I bloody love ya. <laughs> oh, thanks, Maddie. You're so nice. Um, thanks for providing <laughs> this safe space. <laughs> I'm terrible at receiving compliments, as you can probably tell. Um, <laughs> oh, <but> <laughs> Oh, yes. Um, no, thanks for having me. Just super excited to be able to get the word out there and especially to um, a lot of your followers and people who usually listen in to Reclaim Me. So, yeah, if anyone has any questions, want to chat more, like feel free to reach out to myself um, or the Stop Campaign more generally. Always keen to chat. Absolutely. And don't forget to hashtag I deserve safety as well. So let's get that trending as much as possible too. Amazing. Awesome. Thank you all so much for listening to Reclaim Me. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you do need help or support, please reach out to those crisis services or suggested resources in the show notes for this episode. Have a look after yourself and make sure that you're doing and taking the time that you need to process the information or to process anything that may have come up that was triggering for you. Lastly, I do have one ask. Can you please take the time to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any platform that you listen to Reclaim Me on? This helps tremendously with me reaching additional people and making sure that we get the word out there that there is no shame or stigma that should be associated with being a victim of these crimes. If you could also share this podcast with somebody you may know, as you may not be a survivor yourself, but you sure as hell know one. Thank you again. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 